All right, continuing once again this morning in the book of Amos. Going to be looking in chapter 3. The whole thing today, if the Lord will allow us, you only have I known. Now, real quickly, as we consider where we've been at in the book of Amos thus far, the word came to Amos. And it was not a word that he simply heard. Instead, it was a word that Amos saw. It wasn't just a message that he received. As a matter of fact, the word that came to him is nothing less than a person, the active word. It is the very word of the Lord, the expression of his character. And what did Amos see except for that very Lord roaring forth? From Zion in chapter 1, verse 2, and he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. When the Lord himself roars, the children of God come trembling, but the wicked harden their hearts. And the result of that as it unfolds over the next two chapters is the Lord raining fire upon the likes of Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, even Judah. And now as we leave chapter 2 and enter into verse 3, the topic of the book proper, the Lord's judgment coming upon Israel. For there is none righteous, no, not one. Not the Philistines, not the Canaanites, not the Ammonites, not Judah, and not Israel. For they believed the most dangerous of all lies. They replaced the truth of God with something they called God that they manufactured according to their own image and their own ideals. They trusted not in the God of creation, but instead in their own strength, and in doing so, fell into something that was nothing less than the madness of believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth that was right in front of them. When he was so good to show them himself at every turn, and every bit of creation declaring the glory of God and the very prophets that came and spoke to them according to His Spirit. They failed to remember. They failed to remember what He had done for them. They failed to remember the faithfulness that He had showed them. They failed to remember that the only reason they were even around to still have a prophet speaking to them about the judgment of God was because God has already been gracious, gracious to them in sparing judgment from coming upon them. And yet, even in the midst of His wrath, the Lord would tell us that He spares Israel, that His grace comes to them, with very good cause. As a matter of fact, the greatest of cause. And it has absolutely nothing to do with them. In Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, the prophet writes and says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known. Forgive me for being dramatic, but I think it deserves some drama. You only have I known. Of all the families of the earth. What an incredible statement. Man, hear this, people of Israel. You you only. Not the Canaanites. Not the Philistines. Not the Tyrenians. Not the Ammonites. Men, they were greater than you. They were stronger than you. They were more in number than you. They were wealthier than you. Their technology was better than yours. 
You were dusty ones. But you only have I known. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Being a chosen people is a dramatic, sometimes even dangerous position. They were different. And they were different not because of themselves. They were different because of him. What made them different was the fact that he knew them. The Lord speaks to this in a lot more detail in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 10, in verses 12 through 22. And I'm going to read a lot this morning. I'm not going to have a whole lot to say apart from what I read. This will be sparse. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 through 22, the Lord says this to the very people that he is speaking of about a unique covenant relationship that he has with them and them alone. And in verse 12, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and to the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. And yet the Lord, yet the Lord, even though all of this belonged to him, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. not partial the the, the Hebrew literally means he does not raise up your face he's not partial he takes no bribes he owns heaven he owns earth he owns the heaven of heavens he created them all at a word he is the great he is the mighty he is to be loved and feared and in all of this being able to truly be free of will and do whatever he chooses he has set his heart on his people in love it's not because of them as a matter of fact I say it if you really want to translate it as directly as you possibly can, it literally means don't lift up their front. So if you want to put it in the common vernacular, God don't front. What he's doing is not about them. It's about him. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your own eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. How in the world is it that God doesn't show favoritism and yet so clearly shows favoritism? I chose you, he says. I picked you 
of all the peoples. I set my love on your forefathers and I chose you, his offspring after you, Israel. You are my people. You only amongst all the nations have I known. And yet, he doesn't show favoritism. Because the direction of his will is not based in the favor of men. It's based after his own favor and his own character. This is a choice that he made. This is grace. This is God looking down on a people that as we see in Amos have absolutely no redeeming value whatsoever and saying, I'll redeem you. I will buy you. I will purpose, purchase you, not because of your value, but because of his. Doesn't speak to the value of that which is redeemed. It speaks to the value of the redeemer. And what an incredible value it is. Israel is a particular people to him. Friends, I want to tell you something. Every single person that can be called according to his name, according to the testimony that we saw from young Ben this morning, every single person that can be called according to his name is a particular individual to him in grace. This is, this, this is not accidental. It is offered freely to all. But God causes his people to come. The, the Lord roars forth from Zion. The wicked harden their hearts, but his people come trembling to him for delivery from guilt. In Psalm 147, in verses 19 through 20, it says that he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thusly with any other nation. They don't know his rules. Praise the Lord. It is a praiseworthy thing when God sees fit to tell his statutes and his rules to his people. As a matter of fact, I just had, I just had 147, uh, 19 through 20 on the page. But let's just look for just a second. I said I was going to read this morning, so let's read. Psalm 147. We won't read the whole thing. Let's jump in at verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. He starts in the same place he's going to finish. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses, he blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool and scatters frost like ashes he hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs who can stand before his cold he sends out his word he melts them makes his wind blow and the waters flow he declares his word to jacob his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. We have been fortunate. We have been fortunate enough to be gluttons of God's word. You understand when, when Psalm 147 was written, the majority of this was not available to the people that were singing that psalm. It's available to me. It's available to you. It's available to us. Man, we have the opportunity to feast if only we would. It is a particular people and a particular blessing with particular praise to have the word of the Lord come to you. And that word brings with it responsibility. 
man, they were different. And they were different because unlike everybody else, it was them that he knew. It was them, and this isn't talking about intellectual head knowledge. He was intimate with them. He knew them the way a man knows his bride and the way a bride knows the bridegroom. And with the reality of that kind of intimate knowledge comes responsibility. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the Lord spoke to their father Abraham and he said, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The New Testament tells us that that was the gospel being spoken to Abraham. There's a lot at stake here. There's a reason that these people are held to particular account because they've been particularly known. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul would talk about it like this in verses 2 through 6 and says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's important you get your mind wrapped around that because when you read Amos, man, it seems like they are being rejected. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Or as Paul will continue to say in the remainder of chapter 11, in verses 17 through 18, if some of the branches were broken off, the very people that Amos was speaking to, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Here you have a God who by his own standard of conduct does not take a bribe and will not front your face. And yet he absolutely, absolutely shows favoritism. A God who says he won't show favoritism. Why? Because he doesn't do it out of the favor of men. He does it out of the quality and the favor of his own character. It's not us that supports him. It's him that holds us together. Colossians chapter 1. And the reality is, the reality is, is when the Lord does that for you, when he does it for me, and when he does it for you, and when he does it for us, that kind of favor comes with responsibility. It comes with responsibility. Amos chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. The Lord shows it to the prophet this way. The two walk together unless they've agreed to meet. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it?
does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Well, what I would like to do at this point is to go on a holy tirade about the fallacy that is often brought up when disaster comes. When the people of God somehow think that they can bring comfort to people who are suffering by telling them the disaster that has befallen them didn't come at the hands of the Lord. Isn't that a funny thing? Like somehow people that are suffering are going to be comforted when you come to them and go, hey, listen, you know, God's good, and, but he wasn't in this. So I guess the implication is that he couldn't have stopped it if he wanted to. But now that it's already happened, man, he's here to be by your side and he's here to help you out. Man, if that's all God's got, there may be better options. But that's not all God's got. Look, man, Amos says the hard stuff. Why does disaster come? Because God sent it. That's why. Why did he send it? Because he is holy and good, and men are sinful and evil, and judgment comes. Is that pleasant to say? It is not. But it is the truth about who God is that when Israel tried to replace that with something they preferred more, ensured that judgment would come. Whereas if they would have embraced the truth of a holy God for what he was and not ran from it, it would have prevented judgment from coming now here's the thing when you look at chapter 3 verses 3 through 6 we could analyze this thing to bits all day long but the fact of the matter is is I don't think you should and I know that sounds crazy coming from me but the reason I don't think you should is because of the nature of the narrative and the style that is being employed this is supposed to be a belt-fed machine gun of rhetorical questions to which the answer to everyone is no. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? No, they don't. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No, they don't. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No, they don't. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? No, it doesn't. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No. Does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? No. Friends, the reality is, the reality is that genuine, holy, and intimate love is capable of being the basis for an anger that hatred can never match. Man, if you walk away with one thing today, that's it. Holy, intimate love is the foundation that can produce a righteous anger that hatred will never even scratch the paint on. The reason he said that he is so angry with them is not because they didn't know him and not because he didn't know them, but because he did. That's why he's angry. It's because he set his heart in love on their forefathers. And he chose them when they weren't worthy of being chosen. They weren't the biggest. They weren't the best. They weren't the smartest. They weren't the fastest. They weren't the wealthiest. And he just did it because of them. Or just because of him. Yeah, don't get that backwards. It's when you trust the Lord, not the preacher. He did it just because of him. 
Love can produce an anger that is stronger than anything hatred could ever dream of. And a righteous God is righteously angry. Not because the heathens have rejected him, but because the people that he knew rejected him. You know, I think that it's about as offended as God can be. Not when he is disdained by the pagan, but when he is rejected in the fullness of his character by his own people. chose him anyway he chose him anyway this isn't new this didn't pop up all of a sudden like he was surprised if you want to start throwing the five dollar words around he was just as omniscient then as he is now he even said I mean good grief if you if you read the end of Deuteronomy, man, he says, look, guys, this is the road you're headed down. This is where you're going to go. This is what you're going to do. And when you do it, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm choosing you anyway. Now let that sink into your heart for a minute. Because, yes, he is speaking to a nation but he is speaking to a nation that is made up of individual people. Man, you've blown it. You're going to blow it. (laughs) That righteously makes me angry. And yet I'm so good, I'm going to do it anyway. Friends, I don't know about you, but what that'll make me do is shut my mouth. And that's a pretty hard trick to get done. That'll shut you down, man. Even in the midst of judgment, God's people are not abandoned. And they are not on their own. He continues in verses 7 through 9 and said, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. The lion is roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. How do they not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Even in the midst of abject rebellion, and we've already done the background work here, so I won't go back and do it again. But, but once again, I know we do have a lot of guests with us today. Once again, I mean, these people sin. What they did is Jeroboam the first decided that who God said he was wasn't good enough for Israel. It wasn't going to support their government. It wasn't logistically sound. It didn't work out. They had moved the capital. It was no longer in Jerusalem. These people are going to go down there. They're going to be worshiping at Jerusalem. They're going to turn away from me. And what Jeroboam did was making two golden calves because they didn't learn from the desert. And he didn't say, Yahweh's not God. That's not what he did. What he did was say, 
Yahweh's something different than he says he is. Man, who he says he is just isn't palatable. Doesn't fit, makes people feel uncomfortable. It's not smart for the government. And he built these two golden calves and he set them up in Israel. And he didn't say, he didn't say, that's not your God, this is. He said, this is your God that led you out of Egypt. And it was a lie. It was a lie. Because it didn't fit. Didn't fit. Didn't fit with what he needed his priests to be. They couldn't be out there telling him all the stuff that he said. Because it was going to undermine his position. Even in the midst of this, even in the midst of this, God did not abandon his people. Judgment may have come, but he didn't abandon his people. He sent the prophets. He sent prophets that, according to Amos, didn't even have a choice. He's like, man, look, when this God speaks, what you're going to do is prophesy. And they did. And he did it because he's so good that even in the midst of people trying to replace him with a lie, he still loved the people that he knew above all others. In the book of Hebrews, he speaks about it like this. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, he says, Consider him, speaking of Christ, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And that's a good one. Uh, I mean, that's, that's write it on a post-it note and stick it on the bathroom mirror kind of stuff. Huh? About the time you get feeling down in the dumps and get feeling really sorry for yourself because everything's so hard, hey, buddy, you haven't looked. Look at Christ. Consider the one that endured such hostility. Consider him. Pulled his, basically pulled his face off. Everybody wants to talk about the nails, and that's well and good. What they did before the nails was every bit as bad. He says, you haven't done that yet. I mean, there, there's the standard, right? Be holy as I am holy. That's, that's what he said, right? If you love me, you'll do the things I've been doing. That, that's the standard. And so, and look, guys, I'm, man, I'm preaching to me. Every time you get to thinking, man, it's tough, hey, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood yet. The Lord hasn't asked that of any of us, though he says it is absolutely his to ask. And there are our brothers and sisters in different parts of this world today that are being asked that very thing. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You read stuff like Amos and people go, man, how in the world are you going to preach that? It's going to be hard. Man, it is hard. How do you do it? Here's how you do it. You recognize the fact that the reason judgment comes upon the house of God is because he disciplines those whom he loves. That's how you do it. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What an incredible statement. Man, Scripture holds such a high concept of the discipline of the Lord that it says that if you don't receive it, that disqualifies you as being a legitimate heir. They have a word for that. It's typically not considered to be appropriate to come from the pulpit. Of 
course, neither is most of what Amos has to say. And this is how high of regard Scripture holds for the discipline of the Lord. He says, man, if, if he doesn't discipline, if he doesn't chastise you, that's because you're not a legitimate son. So, man, how do you deal with this guy? How do you deal with Amos? How do you deal with the reality that, man, destruction doesn't come on a city unless the Lord sent it? How you deal with it is this. When the Lord roars from Zion, the wicked harden their hearts. But his people come to him trembling for mercy, grace, and salvation. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who discipline us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, okay. So here's what it looks like. In the midst of the righteous anger of God, who says the reason that I'm so angry is not because I didn't know you. The reason I'm so angry is because I did. In the very midst of that, in the midst of trouble, like these people had never seen, but was coming like a sledgehammer. Man, you just... Just, just do the background history. Look at what Sennacherib did to Israel. In the midst of judgment that was coming like a sledgehammer, the Lord was speaking to a nation, but he was doing more than that. He was speaking to very particular And yeah, that's a theologically loaded word. He was speaking to a very particular group of people amongst that nation. And in the midst of judgment, salvation would reign. Because friends, we can't preach about salvation if we don't preach about the fact that there is something that we need to be saved from. And so here it is in Amos chapter 3, verse 10 through 15. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds, therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Yeah. Probably doesn't qualify for a coffee mug quote. Hey man, you want to know the good news of the Lord? The good news of the Lord is is the way that a shepherd gets back a sheep when when the lion prounces on it. When, when, When they get back part of a leg and a piece of an ear. That's the way that's the way Israel's going to be, man. This is what's coming for Samaria. Man, you're going to get the corner of your couch. And the edge of your bed. And you go, man, preacher, that doesn't sound very it doesn't sound very optimistic. Friends, the fact of the matter is, is we think more of ourselves than we should. What is shocking is not that they would be rescued as a piece 
of a leg and a chunk of an ear. What's shocking is the fact that God would rescue it all. What is mind-blowing and according to the Apostle Peter shuts the mouth of angels is the fact that he would use his son to do it. The fact of the matter is, is not all will be saved, but there will be some. There will be some. There will be those that are caught up. There will be those that are brought back. Yes, it's true. I will strike the winter houses along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. But it is also true that as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion, even if it's this part and that, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued. We often preach a lopsided Bible. We do. I don't know that there's any way to I don't know there's any way to quantify this, but it would be very interesting to me to see a list throughout the course of a year in the United States of what scriptures were preached in every single pulpit every single Sunday across the country. Because I'm guessing that there's some of them you're going to hear a lot more from than others. Even though it all speaks the same timeless truth about the same immutable God. Amos is no less who he is than John chapter 3 is who he is. It's all the same Lord. It's all the same Creator. It's all the same Savior. It's all the same one that because of the goodness in him and not in men, he says, I've known you. I'm going to save you. Friends, I'll tell you what I walk away from with Amos chapter 3 is somebody's getting saved. I don't know about you, but I'll be the piece of ear. How about that? I'll be the leg. If that's the part that gets brought back, I am completely down. Please give that to me. That's awesome. Man, that's, that's not a bummer. That's not something that ought to bring you down. It's not something... Let me tell you what you don't do. What you don't do is sit around and run your mouth and decide that you think God ought to be different than that because that's what they did and that's how they got there. That's not what you do. What you do is go, man, I'll be the year. How about that? Sign me up. I'll be the leg that gets saved. Man, I'll be the corner of the couch, dude. All day long. The, 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 the little strip of piping on the side of your mattress that makes sure that the, you know, the, the, the fitted sheet that you can't fold no matter how hard you try doesn't slip up off the side of it. You know that little piece? Dude, I'll be that. I'm down. Bring me back. Show me your grace. You say you know me, let me know you. Some, you know what I walk away from Amos chapter 3 with? Somebody's getting saved. Be that somebody. Somebody's getting saved, dude. And hey, listen, there's something they need to be saved from. Man, this isn't some hippy dippy kind of religion where we're all just trying to be the best version of ourselves we can be and all that kind of stuff. Man, what, it, what this is, is the wrath of a holy God. And the grace of a good God that says, I will spend my own life to save you from justice. How about that? So what do you do? What do you do when the Lord roars forth from Zion? What you do is you come trembling, man. You come trembling. The author of Hebrews doesn't stop with simply this idea that the justice and the discipline of God is so good that it identifies those who are chosen. He doesn't stop there. He says, because this is true, 
here's the way you should act. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. I think we stopped in 11. Therefore, because it's true that for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, because that's true, therefore, here's who you ought to be. Right? Brian, you need to look at yourself in the mirror and say, because all this is true, here's who you ought to be. Lift your drooping hands. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Man, let me give you the down and dirty exegesis on that deal right there. That means when God offers, come get it. Do not be foolish enough to think that his long-suffering will tarry forever. Don't do that. Man, when he offers, come get it. Because you are not guaranteed. Look, read the book. I don't care what the preachers tell you. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not. Man, this is the day of grace. This is the hour of mercy. Now. Not later. Do not suppose upon Him as though you will be able to take Him on your terms. Well, The author of Hebrews is going to tell us why. Don't think you can take him on your terms. He is a consuming fire. Lift your drooping hands. Verse 17. You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears, for you have not come. That was Esau whom he did not know, but here's you who he does. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now there's the Lord's. Man, when the Lord roars, His people come trembling. Indeed, I tremble with fear. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, 
Let us be grateful. And let us be grateful for who he is. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Men, how do you preach Amos chapter 3? How you preach Amos chapter 3 is like this. God is holy. He's holy. And in His holiness because of His own goodness, not because of the goodness of me or of you, but because of His own goodness, He has seen fit to have a people that He knows intimately that he's calling to himself, that he's going to save even when most are destroyed. Friends, the way you preach Amos chapter 3 is let that be you. Let that be you. Strengthen your weak knees. Raise your drooping hands. Not because you're able course you're not able this whole thing's about him not about you it's about what he's doing in you it's what he's doing in us give the good confession like you heard this morning come bow the knee proclaim who he is for our god is a consuming fire And you will find, if you do, you will find that he is sufficient, that he is righteous, that he is holy, and that he is faithful to do every single thing he promised he would do. Let me tell you something. If you can hear my voice today, the only thing that stands between you and him is you. That's it. Hey, man. I'm going with the ears. I pray you do too. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, I don't know what else to say other than that you're good and that you have seen fit to save people um, who, who, Lord, apart from you, would not be worth saving. You're good. We exalt you. We extol you. Lord, we celebrate you, even as we've seen it testified to here today. Lord, we thank you for your word, even where it's difficult. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.